Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And this is the third episode in our Dorchester series. The Dorchester Conference is the premier conservative conference in Oregon, and this year took place at Mount Hood on April 12th and 13th. Our first guest is a former legislator, Julie Parrish. She spent four terms in the Oregon State Legislature before just losing an election in 2018. And Sad. We, Sorry. We spoke to her about two petitions that she is circulating. It was a really fun conversation because um, uh, Representative Parrish was fantastically in-depth about a lot of the issues. And it's great that she's obviously, as we mentioned, unfortunately, she she did lose the election. And she's got a she's got a great line in the episode. So tune in about that. Um, so, you know, she's she's not super dispirited, but it's great to see that she's still playing an active role in in Oregon politics and in shaping how elections get done and pension reform and everything. So it's it was fun to talk to her about pension reform and. You know, we got a couple of good laugh lines in there. We talked to her about uh, timber at the end, so it's a it's a pretty well well rounded episode. It's we covered a lot of bases. Yeah, and just to kind of go off of that, this is now the third time we've talked about PERS on this podcast, and it just goes to show how important this issue is that we have an ODOT employee, a economist, and now a former legislator who all that is the thing they wanted to talk about when they sat down and spoke with us. Spoiler alert, this is not the last time PERS is coming up on these podcasts. <laughs> That's true. We have one more for you later. So if you're not <laughs> tired of too. PERS by now, you will be. <laughs> so here's Julie Parrish. Hey, listeners. Our guest right now is going to be Julie Parrish. Julie was a state representative in District 37 for eight years, just recently um, Lost an election. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> First Just, is worse. Second is best. I, I lost know. an election, not a child. So yes. we're, we're all good. That's true. And, but you're continuing to be involved in the Republican community and politics at large. You are circulating two petitions right now. Is that correct? That is, yeah. Okay. So uh, why don't you tell us about those petitions and why you pick these particular issues? Well, um, so the first one's IP10, which is a ballot measure uh, that largely sprang out of the 2017 legislative session. Um, in 2017, the legislature passed a multi-billion dollar uh, tax package for transportation. And in that, um, there was a payroll tax on workers. There was um, uh, the sales tax on cars. There was an increase in the gas tax. But the thing that most was most impactful for my community is that there's a provision in the House Bill 2017 which would allow the Department of Transportation to toll the existing freeways in our state. So these are roads that um, Oregonians have already paid for mm -hmm. with gas taxes and federal highway dollars. And so then Oda comes in and, you know, this Oregon Transportation Commission and uh, the large, well, some Republicans too, but, uh, you know, majority of Democrats comes in and says, hey, we want to um, toll these freeways. And I live in a particularly in West Lynn, um, you can't get around without getting on a freeway. Mm -hmm. So for example, my 19 year old who works in Aurora and goes to Clackamas Community College just to go to work and school every day would have four times of a day of a toll just to get in and out of my community. And so while we certainly need transportation and transportation infrastructure, um, the other thing we have concerns about with using tolls on existing freeways is that those toll dollars won't actually 
go to creating road infrastructure. In fact, you know, they want to use some of those toll dollars to pay for things like um, 12 miles of fixed light rail going down the Southwest Corridor for $3 billion. So we filed IP10 and um, actually Representative Nierman and Les Poole, who's a Gladstone County, uh, Gladstone City um, Planning Commissioner, had filed IP9. And I went back and I looked at that and I said, you know, it needs a couple tweaks and I'll come on with you as a sponsor if you let me tweak it and and we can refile it. So we are qualified to um, go gather signatures full steam for that ballot measure. We have to have, it's constitutional ballot measure. Uh, we have to have 149,000 signatures gathered, you know, by, you know, about July of next year, 2020, uh, for the November 2020 ballot. And if we are able to get that accomplished, then the the ask to voters is, do you want the right to vote on tolling? So it doesn't mm-hmm. say yes or no to tolls. What it says is that if the government wants to toll the existing infrastructure, you get to have a say first. So that's it's mm-hmm. it's basically a vote. It's a vote to let voters vote in the future. <laughs> um, Novel concept. Yeah, exactly. Let citizens be engaged. The other measure is IP13, and um, we are actually getting ready to turn in our signatures. We'll be turning them in on April 15th. And the goal of this ballot measure really is to to do some constitutional reforms around pensions and and not just PERS, but all government pensions. Um, essentially, what's happening is we're masking the pension problem through borrowing. Um, and a great example of that is Portland Community College recently took out $178 million in pension obligation bonds, trying to sort of play the market, right, to, mm-hmm. to try to pay down their pensions. Well, if the bond market, you know, tanks and there's a debt service that goes with those pension bonds, who picks up the tab? It's going to be yeah. college students in the form of higher tuition, right? Yep. So we want to make sure that if we're going to have pensions, and I'm sensitive to pensions, I'm a PERS member, full disclosure. Uh, I worked in a school district, so I have a PERS account. Hey, I'm, has- married, I'm married to a fifth grade teacher, well, so I'm my all husband, about trying to My husband PERS. works in a school district, you know, in our school district. So um, I'm sensitive to the issue around pensions. But what we're doing is not sustainable and using debt to mask what's really going on in our pension system is not okay. And so IP13 just simply says that um, after 2022, that government cannot borrow for pensions. I mean, a novel concept, right? Pay for your pension right. obligation in the year you incurred the, incurred the liability. Uh, an analogy that kind of comes to mind for me is it's, it's akin to taking an advance on your credit card to go up to a casino. And now I think the stock market has better odds than you sitting down to play blackjack, unless you're a card shark. I don't, I've never gone to a casino. The red with 23 you. on the roulette table, right? That, that pops that's every it. now and then. That's how we solve the pension crisis. But it, I mean, do you, do you feel that that's apt? Do you feel that taking out bond money to try to gain better returns than what you would pay on the interest of the debt that you're now that you've just taken out it strikes me as a as problematic on the surface of it well what i find is that um, a majority of the legislature and you know and again this is republicans and democrats frankly there's there's a mix of folks in there when i look at the types of things they say yes to bonding for um, are things that really you would not do in your own household and I, or even in your business, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. I get that government's not a business, but government also has an obligation to make sure that people's tax dollars are used wisely. So a good example of a bonding gone awry is this bonding for the Elliott Forest. You know, we're going to take out a hundred million dollars in bond obligations so that we can pay the 
you know, school fund because we're not mm-hmm. logging the Elliott Forest. And, and what that to me is really akin to is, is yeah, going out, you know, putting, getting your money on the credit card. Um, actually, let me give you a better example. It is like taking out a mortgage on a house you already owned free and clear. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to take out this debt against it so you can go to the casino, right? <laughs> so you, that you can actually try to find a way to kind of arbitrage the system. Well, the problem with the bonding on the Elliott Forest is that to try to cover this $1 million in loss, they're actually going to pick up $17 million in borrowing costs. So it, we're not, we're going backwards, right? Yeah. Because we don't want to log the forest and we're making these policy decisions that are, that are fiscally irresponsible. And so I, I don't want to get into statutory pension reform. I think there's good bills around PERS in the legislature that are not getting any kind of traction. Obviously, there's a supermajority. The, the supermajority was bought and paid for by public unions. So, I mean, you can see where this is going. At this point, yeah. pension um, reform is going to have to happen at the ballot, but it has to happen in a way that is simple, understandable, that is not some complex solution to PERS that voters look at that and they're like, I, I can't wrap my head around mm-hmm. that. But we all know we shouldn't be borrowing money to pay for pensions. We all mm-hmm. know that we should not kick pension liabilities a hundred years into the future, you know, mortgage our kids opportunity for school or higher education or the the potholes on the road or all the services that you're seeing that are not being funded because we just have this astronomical PERS problem. So we're taking a different tra- track at this with IP13 and that we really just want to say, you know what, you can have pensions, but you got to pay for them. Got to pay for them in real time. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. We're rational Republicans, right? <laughs> Shameless plug. Common sense. So a bit, bit of a disclaimer. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we had on a friend of mine, Russ Kasler, who works for ODOT, and his project is the toll, the toll project. It'd be really interesting to get his take on this, to have you two in the same room. Unfortunately, he's a Democrat, and so he wasn't invited to Dorchester. But, Dorchester um, is not a part of the event. You're the right. OEA is out there. Yeah, that's right. Teachers Union have a booth. That's true. So. That's true. Anyway, yeah. Russ, if you're listening, sorry. <laughs> Quick, get in your car, man. Come get on your, out. Come on out here. It's uh, Saturday. Well, so I, I'd be curious to kind of pick up on that a little bit. It's interesting to me that the Democratic Party is here in Oregon is the one that is advancing we can just raise a couple cents of a gas tax. We can put tolls on to fund the projects that they're like light rail that they're interested in when gas taxes and tolls are quite regressive. And we as a party often get tagged as you're, you're favoring the rich. You're the ones who are in favor of regressive taxes. When in fact, definitionally, that is what this is. Do you think there's any room for us as a party to kind of come out and say, Hey, we need to change the way that people perceive the Republican Party because we're, in fact, the ones who are trying to save people money. Well, I think there's a perception that Republicans are anti-tax, which is really not true. Like, you know, I I think it is a philosophical thing for me that it's like, I believe that every dime I earn belongs to me first and the government should be really happy I pay my taxes on time, right? I'm writing my check on April 15th. But when I write that check, it's a covenant, right? It is saying to government, I exp- I'm going to give you my money, but I expect a value in return for that money. Mm-hmm. And where I, some of the people I've served with who are in the uh, Democratic Party sort of believe that every dime that you earn belongs to the government first and that they can dole that money back to you. Well, there was a recent article that showed that Oregon um, is actually the 50th state in the nation for, you know, being able to take home money, right? Mm, so wow. you you make $50,000 and you pay your federal taxes and then compared to all the other states and all their um, – the types of ways and inputs that they take tax money from you is that Oregon, you actually get to keep the least amount of money. Jeez. And so when you look at our structure for taxes and you look at who's really paying the bill – 
We have the, one of the most regressive income taxes on mm-hmm. low-income Oregonians. There's a bill in the legislature right now that would lower the tax rate for low-income Oregonians in the, the lowest tax brackets down to 4%. Right now, mm-hmm. they are paying on average about 7.6% in state taxes. So lowering that to 4% would put about a half billion or so back in the pockets of low-income Oregonians. So instead of trying to help them with a government program to pay for daycare or something like that, let them just keep more of their money, mm-hmm. right? No bureaucracy around that. I mean, yeah. that's such a novel concept. But what that shows when you talk about a half a billion dollars from the lowest income Oregonians, it shows how just how unfair our tax structure is. Mm-hmm. So then if you look at particularly for those of us who live in Clackamas County, other things like land use laws and where jobs are cited and, and, and decisions that impact transit use – 70% of working Clackamas residents have to commute outside of Clackamas County. Well, how do you get there? You get there on the 205, mm-hmm. right? Or connect to the I-5 or whatever. And so disproportionately, I mean, we always hear about this toll conversation. is like, well, these evil people from Washington who commute, who, by the way, pay Oregon income taxes. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that in our tri-county area, it is Clackamas residents who are going to be disproportionately impacted by tolls. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the median rate of income for those families in Clackamas, they are lower income proportionately to Washington County and Multnomah County. Yeah. So now we're talking about tolling the working poor to get to and from work. And so then their answer at ODOT is, well, we'll come up with a, a way that low income Oregon, they can get that money back. I'm like, they need the money in real time to pay the tolls. How is this going to work? And then there's the collection piece. So I did not make the connection one time driving through, you know, Seattle um, about a toll bridge. And, you know, they sent me the, uh, They sent me the little thing in the mail that I hadn't paid the $4. So I paid the $4, but I'm like, we can't collect the income taxes right now for our state. (laughs) Suddenly we're going to try to find a way to collect tolls by mailing people. Mm -hmm. And we're going to then say, well, if you don't have a toll, you don't pay the bill, then we're going to take away your driver's license or, you know, then let's just push you into the criminal justice system. And they're seeing in other states where they have done this kind of tolling that they, they are jailing people. They are putting, you know, people into a situation where they have a suspended driver's license over toll. And I'm just like, that is not the way to fund road infrastructure. So, so I don't love tolls to get all together, but IP10, I'll just say real fast not to cut you off. No, it's fine. But IP10 doesn't say you can't have tolls. It just says if there are going to be tolls, voters get a chance to vote and the money has to stay with the toll road and it has to be used for net new capacity on the freeway. Like you just can't say, hey, we're going to take, you know, tolls and use that money to pay for PERS or something. Yeah. And to your point, like this is one of my biggest frustrations living in Oregon is seeing how much money is taken out of my, out of my paycheck for taxes and tolls is just going to add to that. And we don't see the services, you know, there's still potholes. I live in downtown Portland. There's homeless people everywhere. What are we getting for all this money? It's, it's just kind of going into the system and disappearing. It's like, we, we need fiscally conservative representatives to go in and say, we're not anti-tax. We just need those taxes to go to something that benefits the community and aren't just sucked into the system where who knows where they go. And we end up 50th in the nation and how much money you retain. And Portland is a disaster. Well, it's, you know, they, they put passed a very complex rent control bill this year, for example, Senate right. Bill 608. And, you know, because people can afford their rent. 
Well, it's really interesting that Republicans in Oregon put forward a bill to give renters a tax deduction. It will not get a hearing, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It will not, you know, get a, a work session, I'm sure. Uh, the measure would allow a renter who is the, the leasehold, sign the lease on an apartment or on a rental unit, um, the ability to have up to $5,000 deducted off of their Oregon income taxes to help offset their rent. The mm -hmm. irony of that bill is you have Democratic presidential candidates in like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and even Elizabeth Warren, who as part of their presidential platform have even taken that a step further and said, well, we want it to be a tax credit, uh, which is different than a deduction. A tax credit's dollar for dollar off of your tax return. You know, deduction is just, you know, lessens your tax, taxable income through a deduction. It's not a dollar for dollar. They actually want the dollar for a dollar and they want it refundable and they want it to include, you, you know, a portion of utilities. I think Kamala Harris's plan is, uh, 30% of whatever you pay for rent and utilities. If you're a certain income level, um, you can have that dollar for dollar back on your federal taxes. And if you are low enough income, you can have that back as a refundable tax credit. So even if you didn't pay enough in taxes, you'd actually still get money back from the treasury uh, to help you offset those expenses. So nationally, Democrats are saying, hey, you know, this is a solution. Oregon has, you know, Republicans have put forward a similar kind of solution. And yet, you know, th that won't get any traction here. So it's interesting to see some of the solutions that Oregon Republicans are trying to bring to solve problems that actually mirror some things that Democrats on the national stage are talking about. But Democrats here are so, you know, connected to try to like taking every dollar that you have because we have these big giant obligations and mm -hmm. PERS and public employee health care. And, you know, we've expanded Medicaid in such a way uh, that it was not very well planned for how we would retain the, the Oregon share of that Medicaid that, I mean, essentially the next recession, I think we're in a big world of hurt. And so they need every single dime. But while, like I said, nationally, Democrats are saying, hey, we have to help renters. Instead, we passed this really complex tax bill, which, uh, I mean, the, the rent control the rent bill, control. which will drive people into the court system, right? We're going to yeah. need more court costs when we go into eviction proceedings and, and wind up in, in using up our courthouse system. And so it's like, there's just, just a really disconnect in the thinking about how to solve those problems and, and to do it with less bureaucracy. So again, it's not that I'm not like, Hey, I, I never want to pay my taxes. Um, it's like, use my money smart. Like be smart with my money. Yeah. I'm going to see if we can get in touch with some of those Republicans here in Oregon and if maybe also include in addition to rent being tax deductible, podcasting expenses being tax deductible. 100% <laughs> would get I my I keep vote. telling people, I said, you know, we have a political tax credit in Oregon whereby you can use your tax dollars, dollar for dollar to fund uh, the politician of your choice. I actually believe we need a media tax credit so that I can dollar for dollar fund the media of my choice. Perfect. Uh, and Such be as a rational Republican listener. <laughs> subscriber you know hey you know who i think is doing a really good job with um sort of that you know kind of behind the paywalls like salem reporter uh, mm, they're doing they great yeah. hardcore investigative old school journalism about what's really happening in oregon you know and it's 10 bucks a month and it's like all right folks we we have got to keep you know journalism we have to keep all forms of, of media open i don't sort of subscribe to the fake news thing i think there's everybody can create news and and things that are newsworthy and then we all have to be good consumers mm -hmm. and use our own filters to sift through those things but it's tough right now to to hold government accountable when you see the, the you know the the folks who are trying to create news and uh, and share what's going on with people, you know, not be funded. And so it's like we fund politicians with our tax dollars. How about we fund the uh, organizations that are keeping an eye on government with some tax dollars too? So yeah. 
Absolutely. That'd be great. That'd be great incentive to have people actually pick up their local if it's Salem reporter, if it's whatever you got in Portland, Clackamas, whatever it is that like, yeah, take out a subscription, go pick, pick it up and read it and see what's going on. Cause that's, it's so difficult to get. And people are so consumed with MSNBC or CNN mm-hmm. or Fox news or whatever. And you miss what's going on in your own backyard. It's like, yeah, that's a problem. Well, the government closest to home can do the most damage or the most good. And everyone wants to get all sidewound around what Congress is doing. I'm like, there are pieces of congressional legislation that passed, you know, like the ACA is a good example, the Affordable Care Act. There are pieces of the ACA that haven't even gone into implementation yet, almost a decade later. But that payroll tax that they passed (laughs) in the transportation package, you know, that went into effect right away. And so... $108 million from the kicker. Right. Gone. Emergency clause. Gone. Take the kicker. We had Alex Scarlett us on a little bit ago and one of his things you just you just heard him speak but logging is a big thing that he's interested in and how government has basically ruined a whole portion of our state by removing these ability to use the forests and just another example of of how the government negatively affects communities well and even if there are going to be forest fires and you know i always marvel when i see the oh look climate change and forest fires you know i mean certainly oregon's a little drier than it was when i was a kid but um, the reality is if you actually go and read the data from the department of forestry is that 70 percent of the fires that are caused in oregon are human caused so Mm -hmm. you know maybe we don't need a carbon tax maybe we need a tax for people to be a little uh, stupid in the forest but um 15 year old last summer two summers ago that popped fire fire in the gorge it's terrible But what happens after a fire is what's and, and during a fire, I think, is even more critical than are we managing the, you know, the, the, the logging piece. Um, because if you, you know, there's a lot of folks who don't like aerial spraying. Well, if you're not kind of compressing what becomes tinder during those seasons, if you're not keeping that ground covered clear, if you're not doing salvage logging after a fire and, and clearing out the fire, what's going to be fuel in the next fire season, um, then the next fire season gets worse and worse and worse. And we were in a committee meeting uh, during legislative days last year in 2018, where I may mean, actually ask the fire, the forest department, I said, you know, are you a hundred percent suppression effort, right? Where they actually try to go out and put out every fire. And the answer is yes. Well, there's a lot of research coming out now that hundred percent suppression of our fires is actually making fires worse. So people can say it's global warming, but it's not just about the logging piece. It's actually, how do we keep our forests maintained in a way that we are keeping down the brush, that we're removing, you know, fuel sources out of uh, fire. You can't just necessarily selectively thin dug fur, right? Cause right. then they all fall over and you know, that their root structure is not designed that way to, to just be like, go thin one tree, you know, here or there. So we have to be better about this overall, but yeah, Alex is probably right that, you know, we're going to see more of this and people want to immediately go, well, it's climate change. I'm like, mm, do a little more homework folks. And you know, there's actually uh, some real scientific reasons that have nothing to do with climate change about, you know, why this is happening. So, yeah. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. So Julie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we're going to head back to the conference and see what they got next for us. There it is. Great. Our next interview is with Larry Morgan. Larry is the Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the Secretary of State's office here in Oregon. And he was just, it just became public knowledge that his services will no longer be needed here in a few months when his contract expires. Larry's an interesting guy. Larry was elected to a city council position in Troutdale and served for a couple of terms. And he was actually brought on by the Secretary of State, Dennis Richardson, the now former Secretary of State, Dennis Richardson, as the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator. 
which is uh, for me, it's a it's a fantastic hire. It's a fantastic idea because a Larry is an incredibly wonderful person, a very dedicated guy. I I personally got to know him working on Newt's campaign, and I think it just shows how important it is for us as the Republican Party that the Secretary of State. Dennis Richardson, who who was the only person to win statewide election as a as a Republican, we haven't had somebody win statewide election for I could have googled this beforehand, but it's been twenty years or something like that. And he saw the need to work both across the aisle. Larry is a Democrat, and work with communities that traditionally Republicans have not been able to to reach from an electoral standpoint, or have not, and also have not been interested in providing services for and so i you know it's it's a testament to how big of a loss secretary of state dennis richardson was that he was he had the foresight to bring in this person and to have some really good work get done for those who aren't in oregon or maybe aren't quite as up to speed dennis richardson our secretary of state passed away from brain cancer a few months ago and so according to oregon state law the governor then appoints a successor that but the successor has to be from the same party so Governor Brown appointed Bev Clarno, who then basically cleaned house and a lot of people from Dennis's staff were let go. And so Larry is uh, is one of the casualties, which it is what it is. That's, you know, Kate Brown, Governor Brown, got the chance to appoint a new secretary of state. And, you know, obviously all of us hope that uh, that Secretary Clarno continues the work that Dennis Richardson was doing because he had a he was fantastic at his job he had a lot of audits that generated a lot of attention and hopefully meaningful change and we'll see if secretary clarno is uh, is going to be able to do the same things yep and so this is a bit of a shorter interview we only got about 10 minutes with larry because he had to go catch a plane but we appreciate his taking the time to come speak with us and i hope you enjoy the interview Hey, listeners, once again, we're welcoming a special guest. Today we have Larry Morgan, whom I actually got to know uh, as part of the, the Newt Bueller campaign when we were doing some work there. And Larry was a an integral part of the election of Dennis Richardson and did a, a bunch of wonderful work. Your title was Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator? Correct. So Correct. what what does that mean to you? After the secretary got elected, Secretary Richardson asked me to start to expand the office of Secretary of State as it related to underserved populations, marginalized populations, and folks that traditionally have felt like government hadn't represented them. And so my scope was working with tribal populations and urban and rural populations, the LGBT populations that we have in our state, and and really try to find a way to interact, engage, and uh, empower certain populations that have felt like Maybe government had a role in their lives somehow, but maybe not necessarily proactively being engaged with them. Got it. So for our listeners who can't who can't see you, um, you're African American. There's <laughs> listeners that can see us right now. Yeah, It'd be weird. For, on a weird podcast. Well, I, I'll be listening later. I can see him. So you, you're you're African American. Also blonde. Also blonde. Uh, yeah. That looks a little dyed. <laughs> the though. killer bees. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you mentioned a little before the podcast, you are not a Republican. I'm not. So what drew you to working for a Republican Secretary of State or a Republican I, government? I for that? think, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but I, to me, government should be blind as it relates to how it serves people. Now, not, not necessarily uh, who it serves. Oftentimes, government is blind who it serves. I'm a millennial. I, I believe that government should work for everybody. And I think right now, oftentimes, thin labels and platitudes by both parties don't necessarily get to the root core of who people are, both as politicians or the policies that they may implement if they're elected. 
uh, and the unique relationship that I've had with many Republicans and Democrats and vegetarians across the spectrum <laughs> is that I'm more interested in the convictions and the shared interests that we have. And that I think to some is viewed as confusing or conflicted or, or schizophrenic. But for me, I, I think that you can work for anybody if they share those values and principles. Um, so I'll say now that the secretary has has passed, what are the things that you see as, you know, from the outside looking in for the Republican Party, what is it that we can continue to do to basically emulate the work that you are doing to continue to reach out to marginalized and underserved communities? I think that's a great question uh, in, in two parts. One, what can you do that presupposes the assumption that that there's an ability and will is a different question. Fair. And I think the problem right now in Republican politics as an outsider uh, looking in or as somebody who has friends that are involved in Republican world. There's only one problem in Republican politics. Yeah, well, I would I <laughs> chief among us um, is that people care more about you caring than what you know. But if you don't care, you'll never know. And the ability that I provided for Secretary Richardson in the office was more about um, my availability and my ability to find the common ground. I know that a lot of Republicans do not like identity politics. Hmm. They think it's um, a, a trap or it is somehow inconsistent with their values because we should be in a colorblind society. I wish that were true. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. And – Unfortunately, right now, I think that we're in very, very divided times and there's a lot of populations of perceptions about what, what the GOP either stands for or stood for. And I think that as a party, the Democrats have done a great job of, I think, including all populations and peoples. And I, I don't know that the Republican Party is unwilling to do that. But I know that as a party, if you look at like Texas, for instance, the population there is diverse. It is vast. It is uh, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. And there is a considerable amount of Hispanic Republicans in the state of Texas because they've been embraced, they've been engaged, they've been empowered, and they've been included in the fold. Now, Oregon is not the diverse state, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, for that matter, both historically speaking and just demographically speaking. But I know that there's a perception amongst communities of color, communities that are marginalized or underserved, that the GOP is not either interested or concerned with the issues that they have. Sure. And that takes a desire and a need, I think, to intentionally reach out and engage. What would be an example of, of one or two of those issues you think that communities of color are sort of ignored by the GOP? Well, I, I would I could go into several. I'll, I'll, I think one of the most important one is the discussion around law enforcement and policing. Mm. There has been a few instances where I have had interactions with law enforcement that have not been positive. And I know that I am somebody who has been educated, somebody that I, I think does a good job or can advocate for himself. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that law enforcement's interaction with certain communities of color is always positive. And I think that there's a perception there based on stereotypes or, or just education. And to when people are talking about Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. that is more about the fact that traditionally speaking and in many cases of when there is a lethal force used – those lives didn't matter. And so I think being sensitive, I think being more in tune with concerns, not just the rhetoric, is invaluable. I think housing rights. Again, when we view people as objects, mm -hmm. humanity suffers. When we view people as a basic 
human life, which I know that the, the GOP talks about being pro-life, life yeah. doesn't end outside of the womb. I think that that's when we can begin to have a conversation as Americans first and foremost about our common interest, our commonality, our common ground, and the things that we all prioritize. Yeah. We've said it on the podcast before, but I think it is very important to, especially as, as Republicans or as white males in America, to try to see these issues through someone else's perspective. The thing we brought up before is immigration, where it's very easy to kind of sit on our in our ivory tower and talk about border security as if it's something that doesn't affect real people. Put yourselves in the shoes of one of those migrants or one of those, whoever they are, the, the illegal immigrants, or, or put yourselves in their shoes for a minute and imagine them being a human being because they are a human being. And, you know, there's a balance there between rule of law, border security, you know, those are all important issues. But so that's I don't I don't actually know if I've ever told you this story, but I lived in El Paso for seven years and there's a stretch of I-10 that goes through El Paso and you are within 150 feet of the border and you can see there's a chain link fence and there's the Rio Grande and then on the other side there's Mexico. And we were driving up one day and you look to the right and you see, you know, Schlotsky's Deli and Burger mm -hmm. King's and nice houses and you look to the left on the Mexico side and there's one room cardboard shacks. And my dad just made a comment. He said, you know, I don't blame him. I'd want to be here, too. And that's legal or illegal. If it sucks where you are and America is amazing, to your point, like, if we never take the time to kind of look on the other side of I-10 in El Paso, Texas, and say, like, yeah, like, I would want to come to America, too. You kind of yeah. lose that perspective. I'd be curious for your thoughts, <laughs> especially because I think you know the race a little bit. Uh, earlier mention was made of Justin Wong's and his the mailer that was sent out in his in his campaign, which for our listeners, he was a, a candidate who ran for a state house seat here in Oregon. And his mailer sent out a or his opponent sent out a mailer saying Justin is not a real member of our community because Justin is a he's Korean American. I think the quote was uh, he's one of us. That referring the, to the Chris opponent. Chris Corsick said he's one of us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've worked with. um Representative Gorsuch, I was endorsed by Representative Gorsuch when I was running initially for office. I think what was said and what was meant are two different things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't negate or disregard the hurtful nature um, and the unfortunate consequences of those of those words. I think we are in a very divided time in a na as a nation and I think as a people. And I think rhetoric of racial attitudes or um, undertones are inappropriate in any capacity. Mm -hmm. As somebody who received the mailer myself, mm -hmm. it, it was offensive as appalling. But we've somehow come to uh, normalize that behavior, reinforce and fuel that rhetoric. And we make our American politics a zero-sum game, which means anything that justifies getting an extra person on the Supreme Court or, or winning Congress is worth it. And so much is lost in winning, both as humans as elected officials, and I think more importantly, as uh, a country that is a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So just, uh, we're, we're coming up on the end of our time, but just to, kind of to close, if if our audience is rational Republicans and, you know, hopefully maybe some centrist Democrats, hopefully, <laughs> what is a, a step that you would advise them to take just for their own lives, regardless of how political they are, how active they are? What's something that you can do as a as a Republican who's looking to make the party more inclusive? What's something you can do in your daily life? Well, I think a lot of people talk about the golden rule, mm -hmm. uh, doing to others. And the question that I would pose to conservatives or folks that may be inclined to be Republicans or what, whatever that, that means, I think Reagan said it best, all great change in America 
starts at the dinner table. Hmm. Your family, in your home, in your heart. And if folks are unwilling or uninterested in being part of the solution and changing their attitudes and hearts and minds about each other, about members of different parties, and about people that may look or be different than them, I think that that's where the start begins. And I would empower and encourage folks to model the behavior they like to see better in the world. Because it's really easy to take pot shots from the cheap seats, mm -hmm. uh, watch your Fox News or your MSNBC, whatever brand of choice you like. Or do a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's a lot more easier when that uh, undocumented person or that person that may be African-American or, or Catholic or whatever their difference may be is in a supermarket. Mm -hmm. And uh, they forgot their wallet at home and you pay for their groceries. Those are the kind of things that I think start to change who we are as people. When we quit, we quit viewing folks as the enemy. And there might be opponents. But I don't think that anybody's an enemy. Here, here. And honestly, that's one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is have people of different different uh, political parties, different ideas, different races, genders, and just try to find common ground. And so really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Always. Good luck, boss. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.